Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller. The Miller Report is a weekly podcast sponsored by WABC. We talk to business leaders about real estate because real estate is the lifeblood of all cities, particularly this one. But today I'm going a little off the grid. We're going to talk to somebody whose field is of a particular importance to me. She's the executive director of the Alzheimer's Association. She has 30 years of Alzheimer's experience in dementia and Alzheimer's and served as the president of the board of the Northeast chapter. She is really the expert in this. And I want to thank Beth Smith Boyvin to the Miller Report. Beth, thank you for what you do, and welcome to the Miller Report. Well, thank you for having me, Suzanne. What a nice introduction. I appreciate that. So, you know, I know a lot about this. Both my parents had Alzheimer's, and that's why when I was talking to WABC about my next guest, I know it's a real estate show, but we have a big event coming up, and we need to really raise awareness to this. And I'm going off the grid. I'm making an exception for this purpose. So, Beth, I know I, I, it's, it's insane. 6.7 million adults over 65 have Alzheimer's disease. 6.7 yeah. million. And I mean, one out of three people are going to get this. I mean, is, is this true? It is true, Suzanne, although I, I suspect that it actually the number is probably much higher because we have a lot of people who haven't either reported their symptoms for a variety of reasons or received that diagnosis for another variety of reasons. Beth, it looks like women represent two thirds of all cases. Is this yeah. a real concern or is it just because women live longer than men? No. So it's interesting, Suzanne. That's what we used to think. When we first started to collect the data and look at it, we thought, well, women live longer than men and the primary risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is aging. However, over the last 10 years or so, as we've begun to look a lot more deeply into other risk factors for developing dementia, we've learned that there are many sex differences between men and women that likely contribute to our developing Alzheimer's disease more than our male counterparts. Um, one of those things, for example, is that women who have had preeclampsia during their pregnancy, which is so many women, um, and women. What is that? Have, Wait, tell us what it is so we go, people need to hear. What is it? Sure, sure. So, women who have high blood pressure during their pregnancy, some simply have higher blood pressure during pregnancy, they are at a higher risk of developing vascular dementia, which is the mm -hmm. dementia that develops after having a number of strokes. But preeclampsia is a severe case of this high blood pressure that becomes dangerous for both the mother and the child. Women who have preeclampsia during their pregnancy, are more likely to develop vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. So have both types of dementia as they age. 
Now, I happen to be one of those women. I had a very serious case of preeclampsia with my first pregnancy 36 years ago. So it startles me because I also had a stroke when I was 43. Wow. All of us women who have had any kind of pregnancy complications and any other differences as we learn more about those, we're going to see, I think, that that's really what contributes to more cases of Alzheimer's disease among women. Mm-hmm. Do you think, Beth, that it's, I mean, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions that I know we don't have answers to, but you're the mm-hmm. expert and this is as close as we can get. For those who don't know it, I also sit on the board of the American Alzheimer's Disease Association because it's so important to me. It is really something that I'm doing whatever I can to volunteer my time to cure this. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm going to ask some questions that I know you will not have answers to, but we could do the best we can. Do you think Alzheimer's disease is hereditary? I think in certain circumstances, it's hereditary. So with what we know now, we know that there are a couple of genes that are what we call deterministic, which means if you have that gene, you will develop that disease. And then there are probably a hundred other genes that may have a role to play in Alzheimer's disease, but we have not yet determined whether it's a deterministic or a risk gene. For this How do we find out if we have that gene? I know if you have breast cancer, you could do that uh, BRCA gene. But so is there, a, is there a test? Sure. So there is a test for the genes that we have isolated as being deterministic genes. And those genes are what we call presenilin genes. So presenilin 1 and presenilin 2 are a type of gene. We see them in certain cases of individuals who have had a parent or a primary relative, so it could be mother, father, brother, sister, diagnosed with what we call early onset disease, which means the the diagnosis before the age of 65. In those individuals, they can test. They have to receive a New York State genetic counseling in order to receive a genetic test. But if they want to move forward with genetic testing, they can tell whether or not they have presenilin 1 or presenilin 2 and that will determine their outcome as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. What about the older people? So every other gene that we have right now is an at-risk gene, and we Mm -hmm. haven't honed in on those as being either risk or deterministic yet, so we can't test for those because we don't know enough about them to determine whether or not they are going to cause somebody to have the disease. So all we would be able to do if we were to test you for gene XYZ, let's say, is say, well, you had a parent with Alzheimer's disease and you have an at-risk gene, so you're at higher risk for developing Alzheimer's. But the truth is we already know that. People that have a parent with Alzheimer's disease are at 35% higher risk for developing Alzheimer's than their age-related counterparts who do not have a parent with disease. So we already know that the risk is higher. Mm -hmm. Bad news for me. Both my parents had it. So why would I get tested? Like if I know that there really is no cure and it's just going to say that I am at risk, which I already know I am, why would I want to get a test and ruin the rest of my life? Right. So you wouldn't want to test if you were if you were at risk frankly, because there's no reason to test that. Again, we already know that the risk is higher for those folks that have an immediate relative. However, if you had a deterministic gene, many people decide to test for deterministic genes for a couple of reasons. First of all, family planning. 
many people who have... Let's just interrupt you. You mean for the lower, for the age around 65, Mm -hmm. that's the deterministic. Uh Okay, correct. Right, Mm -hmm. right. And then the other thing that one would be able to do is that as more treatments are emerging and as more clinical trials are emerging, those folks with deterministic genes would have the ability to access those trials and treatments. I see. So Beth, what are the early signs that you would see in different stages to if somebody had Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. So the early signs of Alzheimer's disease really include a very specific type of memory change. And in Alzheimer's disease, the reason we say that's so specific is because the disease begins in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And that area of the brain is responsible for making new memory. And Mm -hmm. so the memory loss that we see in early Alzheimer's disease is for new events. And it's because people have the inability to store that data reliably. And so people can remember things that happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but they don't remember what they had for breakfast. And they don't remember if they took their pills properly and they don't remember what happened yesterday. And so it's a very specific form of memory change that we see in early Alzheimer's. In addition, we often see people become more withdrawn or a little bit depressed, people that need cues or prompts um, to complete activities of daily living like bathing and dressing and mouth care. We see impaired judgment and reasoning, impairments in people's ability to multitask or manage mathematical equations, checkbooks, bill paying. And we also often see simple episodes of confusion and difficulties with language. So when you start to see two, three of those signs, we really do urge people to get to the doctor and and have that evaluation. If you're suffering from ED, you're not alone. 60% of men over 60 have this problem. Help is out there. The professionals at Elevate Wellness can help you be the man you used to be. They've helped thousands of patients and have a 96% success rate. What are you waiting for? Call 973-354-2276. 973-354-2276. Your first visit is only $99. ElevateWellnessGroup.com. Help is out there. ElevateWellnessGroup.com. Your health is important. Your sexual health is very important. And like everything else, it has challenges. As many as 50% of men over 50 have sexual-related difficulties like ED, low testosterone, and low energy. That's where they come in. Elevate Wellness has real professional and in-person solutions. Call 973-354-2276. 973-354-2276. Or visit elevatewellnessgroup.com and get back to where it started. Office visits only $99 this month. So firstly, let's just go over how, like, I I understand you're saying these different stages happen, but take us through the progress. Is it like one year we're going to forget a new memory of what we ate for breakfast, and then the next year we're going to forget to take our pills? Like, what is the progress? Is it like over a year, over five years? How does that Mm -hmm. work? So it's over many years. The the um, the early stage of Alzheimer's disease is the longest stage. The estimates are that it ranges anywhere from four to eight years. But even prior to that, there's a preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease called mild cognitive impairment, where these very subtle changes begin to happen, very subtle changes and say, well, mom's getting older. Well, this or that. And And then all of a sudden, the changes become so apparent or so flagrant that we we get that early diagnosis. 
but folks are then still in the early stage. So you said it's important to get to the doctor, but if we're going to get into this next, we're going to talk about maybe some treatments and drugs, but if you tell the person to go to the doctor, why would they go if there's no hope? Well, I think there is hope, first of all, and there have been treatments in the market for many years. They treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, and there have been five approved by the FDA since 1996 to 2002. They are not game changers in terms of changing the underlying pathology of Alzheimer's disease. But now we have two of those medications approved by the FDA and, and soon to be available in the marketplace as well. So I think that's one reason. The second reason is to, to know, to begin family planning, personal planning, um, and all of those other things that are so critical. Nearly every month at the Alzheimer's Association, we get a call from a family member who says, you know what, I just realized my parent has Alzheimer's disease or my parent just was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and the attorney told us it's too late to execute a power of attorney. What do we do next? And then the guardianship and it's appearing before a judge and spending $10,000 and doing all of that when that could have been avoided with early diagnosis. So we'll talk about the legal part in a minute, but let's stay on the new drugs that have been approved here, which are kind of really exciting. I -hmm. know there's one, Lekembi, that was Mm -hmm. just approved, and I know there's some side effects, but and then there's another one that Eli Lilly released this week on a phase three trial. So talk to me about those drugs. Sure. So there are three new medications, one yet not approved by the FDA, but two approved by the FDA that are all what we classify as monoclonal antibodies. Their generic name ends in MAB. The first one was aducanumab, approved in June of 2021 with some controversy. Lecanumab, which was approved in January of this year by the FDA, and then in July received full approval. So both aducanumab and lecanumab received what was called expedited approval. An expedited approval process is available by the FDA when there are no other treatments in a class available to treat a terminal disease, which Alzheimer's disease is. So those two drugs first received expedited appeal, or excuse me, expedited approval. And then in July, Lecanumab received its full approval by the FDA. Denanumab, we expect, the the one that you just referred to as as we learned about this week, um, that drug we expect to receive full FDA approval in the fall of this year. And then it usually takes a drug about three to six months to be available in the marketplace. All three of these drugs target amyloid, which is a protein that we all have and we all need, but it overaccumulates in Alzheimer's disease and is one of the principal pathologies responsible for the development of Alzheimer's disease. So these drugs for the first time target amyloid, much like we have cholesterol busting medications out there, these are amyloid busting medications. And what's been the success rate of it? And because I know there's a lot of side effects and I'm I'm a little concerned, like I know that Pfizer did a study and then they just stopped. They spent billions of dollars and it's like the golden ticket to who's good. So maybe these companies are just desperate to the coming up with drugs. How effective are they? So they are effective on a limited basis. Denanumab clearly has the best data of all three of these drugs. There's no question about it. It targets amyloid in a little bit different way than the other two do. It actually gets to the source of the amyloid growth 
So much like many of the antidepressants that all fall in the same class, target mm-hmm. serotonin a little bit differently, these amyloid busting drugs do exactly the same thing. They target the amyloid a little bit differently with, again, denanumab having the best data, the best results. Now, what we've seen so far is that they are effective for only up to about 18 months in terms of squashing that amyloid. So again, this is not buying people a cure to Alzheimer's disease, but if we think about it in the context of cancer, it's more likely buying them some remission, if you will, some delay in what will eventually be the disease. And so we wish that this was a cure, that this would end Alzheimer's disease, but Alzheimer's is a very complicated disease with many co-pathologies. The amyloid is only part of it. So in order to really find that robust cure, again, making an analogy to cancer, we're probably going to have to create or develop a cocktail of medications that treat all of those co-pathologies. And you have to start with the first piece of the puzzle. So having an amyloid busting medication is piece one. Now we need a tau busting medication, and then we need something that will reduce neuroinflammation. And then perhaps 10 years from now, when we put them all together, they become a cure, much like we've seen for so many of the cancers. Oh, this is great news that we're at least spending um, some resources and we're getting a little bit on the, ahead of the curve. We're getting here. closer. Mm-hmm. We're getting closer. That's fantastic. So is it better to take this Dunamab earlier? Will that keep you at bay fat more, you know, longer? Absolutely, or Suzanne. You're spot on right there, right? So it's just like many people will say, would you rather start cancer treatment in stage one or stage four? And the same question has to be asked of Alzheimer's disease. The earlier you take an amyloid busting medication, the earlier you're putting that amyloid at bay and the longer you're going to have efficacy with the medication. The data is clear about that. And that really, really drives home the point that you made earlier about early diagnosis. With the evolution of new treatments, it's more critical than ever that people access this early diagnosis. I think that's great news. And you're you're convincing me to want to get tested because I never wanted to, but (laughs) you're making a case. So let's talk talk about something else that I read, that the FDA has now approved a PET scan and then they're, they're in the progress of doing blood tests, just like you do like a finger prick, a yeah. finger prick, and they can see if you have this. Is this? Yeah. Is this oh. yeah. So the finger prick blood test is a little ways away, but the the idea that the FDA would approve, um, well, the FDA and CMS would approve payment for PET scans is critical because it really is the gold standard for making that early and accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is one type of dementia, and there are many, many types of dementia. So just like before you would start treatment for cancer, you need to know specifically the type of cancer you have. The same is true of dementia. You need to know if you've got Alzheimer's type dementia or vascular dementia or Lewy body dementia. And frankly, the treatment that is right for Alzheimer's type dementia will not be effective in Lewy body dementia because that's not an amyloid and tau disease. It's an alpha-synuclein disease. So we have to make sure that we do this 
proper treatment for the proper type of dementia and the PET scan is what gives us that answer. So it's wonderful news from the FDA that they are considering payment um, for these PET scans. So how, what, what is a PET scan? Is it like a CAT scan? You just take an x-ray and you're out? It's pretty much, except the difference is that there's an infusion of a dye. And the infusion of the dye is what lights up the amyloid spots in the brain. And that mm-hmm. tells us that you have an amyloidosis or Alzheimer's type dementia. And that, again, is what gives you the eligibility for these amyloid busting medications. So it's and how fairly far, straightforward. Thank you. And how far in advance would somebody know if they took a PET scan that they are going to have it now or, they, or they're likely to have it? So when should somebody get a PET scan? So we can't answer that exactly because there's a chance that people may have over accumulations of amyloid even before we start to see the clinical symptoms, that forgetfulness and difficulty with word retrieval, the other symptoms that you asked about earlier. Perhaps it's there even before that time. However, because we haven't had access to the scans until now, we don't know that. So it will be interesting to see if the FDA and CMS will authorize payment for scans for people that have mild cognitive impairment or even earlier to see whether or not they have an accumulation of Alzheimer's of, of amyloid determining that they are at risk for the clinical presentation of disease. So let me just use myself as an example because that's my yep. best example. Perfect. So my mm-hmm. parents both had Alzheimer's I think I'm functioning pretty well, mm-hmm. and but I do know that I'm going to have a risk because both my parents in their 80s got Alzheimer's. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Would it behoove me to get a PET scan now and with the risk that I'm going to have this over my head that, hey, I may get this, are they going to see anything now? Would you suggest somebody like myself gets a PET scan? Yes, if it was available because... Because of the very point you just made, you had two parents with Alzheimer's disease, you know that that increases your risk for developing disease. So if you were able to access a pre-symptomatic, that's what we would call it, a pre-symptomatic PET scan, just to determine a baseline, that would behoove your future. Because if, for example, they saw slightly elevated compared to normal levels of amyloid, that would give you the ability to access treatments that were in development or currently approved by the FDA way ahead of um, when you otherwise would be able to access those treatments and perhaps give you many, many years of wellness. Again, using this as a hypothetical example. But you said that the the drug only lasts 18 months. So why would somebody like myself? Well, the drug lasted 18 months in the denanumab trials because we only tested people in those trials that already had the diagnosis of disease. Mm -hmm. We didn't test the adult children of people who were at risk. So again, I think you make a great point. Is it time now that we've got these treatments to go even further back in people's potential history and see whether or not we enroll them in trials to find out whether or not this works for folks that are simply at risk, but not yet symptomatic. Ah, frightening, frightening, frightening. Let's go back to prevention. That's much more fun. So like, what can we do to prevent it? Sleep, exercise, crossword puzzles, foods. Tell us. 
Yeah, so this has been a really exciting area, as you've indicated, and it's really been an emerging science for about the last 10 years. Um, and it was cemented by a study that came out in 2018 out of Johns Hopkins University called the Sprint Mind Study. And in that study, we found that individuals um, in, in the cohort that maintained a systolic or top num number blood pressure of 120 or below had nearly a 20% reduction in the development of dementia as compared to their counterparts that had a systolic blood pressure of 130 or above. Now that cemented our thought that heart health probably is very much a risk factor for brain health. Why? Wow. Well, 25% of the blood that is pumped by the heart goes directly to the brain, the other 75% to other organs in the body. But think about that, a quarter of the blood goes directly to the brain. When the brain is compromised of blood flow, it becomes susceptible to all types of diseases, including Alzheimer's and other dementias. So by maintaining good heart health, we maintain good brain health. What does that mean? To your point, it's aerobic exercise, it's heart healthy diet. And furthermore, we know that doing both of those things reduces our risk of developing diabetes which is probably the third highest risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, again, second to only age um, and heart disease. So by doing all of these heart healthy things, if you will, or just basic health prevention strategies, we know that we're doing good things for our brain. And then the reading, the crossword puzzles, learning a new language, learning a new instrument, we learned about 10 years ago uh, something that we never thought was possible, and that is that the brain can develop new nerve cells even after it is fully grown or fully developed. And so by doing some of these new things, we add new nerve cells to the brain. Now, we have 100 billion nerve cells in the brain. In Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, we will lose those. So the more that we build them up and continue to build them as we age, the better off we're going to be in terms of defending or fending off those those nerve cell diseases. So would you say, can you tell us which one of those um, types of puzzles are best to give us more nerve cells, crossword, skadoodle? Like, what do you think? I think anything that people are interested in is the best for them because the key here is doing something and sticking with it. Mm -hmm. um, and the other key is trying to do something that you haven't done before because it, stress, it stretches the brain's um, ability to learn new things. It makes the brain work harder. And so that's why we say all the time, you know, think about learning a new language, pick up a new instrument, things like that. People say, oh my gosh, I'm too old to do that. But you're not. And ballroom it, it dancing. may really help. I heard ballroom, ballroom dancing. dancing. Yep, absolutely. Well, I'm going to go take a run right after this and, and go enroll in a class. <laughs> Damn. Let's talk legal for a minute, Beth. So, and by the sure. way, I'm loving this. And thank you so much. Oh, you're so, so welcome. When can a family member call somebody incapacitated and how difficult is the process? It's very difficult. So this is a this is a huge challenge. And it's really it's a tricky thing because there are a number of terms that are thrown around when we talk about individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And I think that that incapacitated and incompetent, there's often a great deal of confusion between those two words. So uh, to give you an idea of the process, if you have an individual with Alzheimer's disease and that Alzheimer's disease is fairly advanced, 
and or there's more symptom of difficulties with judgment that can create some kind of an economic or physical risk, then your best strategy, if you can't reason with the individual impacted, which often happens, would be to talk to an elder care attorney about a guardianship proceeding. Now, only a judge can declare somebody to be incompetent. And when a judge does that, it means that your loved one has the same legal rights as somebody under the age of 18. So suddenly you can make decisions for them much like we do to protect the health and safety of our children when they're under the age of 18. So why would um, somebody like not just do that right away when they're, when they're fine, just to appoint somebody just in case, would you recommend well, that? If you could do that, if you do that, that saves you all this trouble. And doing that means executing a form called a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. Mm-hmm. Here in New York State, it's important that you have both because the power of attorney gives your designee the ability to make business decisions on your behalf, but not health. And the healthcare proxy gives your designee the ability to make health decisions, but not business. Now, there are many states like Florida, and we have a lot of New York residents, of course, that spend time in both states. In Florida, you only need one document. The power of attorney covers both business and health. But here in New York, you must have both. So doing both of those things in the early stage of disease before the disease is too far advanced is your best protection against having to go through a capacity hearing only to be declared incompetent and have a judge appoint a guardian for you. It's a terribly long process, a difficult one and an expensive one. Everybody listening to that, we need to give our children power of attorney or our loved ones. So Beth, thinking that pretty much everybody we know or ourselves are going to be affected by this, how can we raise more money? Like, what do you need so that we could really get the word out. I know that the Alzheimer's Association has already committed over 320 million in 54 countries this yeah. year. What do you this need? Tell us, what do you need? What do you need them other than right. money? Right. So we need funding to support the mission of the Alzheimer's Association. You're absolutely right. And the funding at the Alzheimer's Alzheimer's Association goes toward our mission. And and I'm really proud of the mission of the Alzheimer's Association because to your point, Suzanne, we are equally committed to eradicating this disease through the advancement of research. And that 320 million invested makes us the largest nonprofit investor of Alzheimer's research worldwide. But the first point you made when we started today was that we have 6.7 million Americans living with this disease. And as the adult child of two parents with the disease, you know what this journey is like, was like, and you know, families need care and support. And that's the other half of what we do at the Alzheimer's Association is provide that care and support to the millions of family members that are providing unpaid care and support for their loved ones. But the other thing that we need, and we need it desperately, is for people to get an early diagnosis or enroll in research. And that's critical. One of the reasons that it's taken us so long to get to the place we are now, in addition to the complicated nature of Alzheimer's disease and all brain diseases, and in addition to being behind other diseases in National Institute of of Health funding, we have had very low rates of clinical trial participation. 
And that's critical. Drugs don't get approved by the FDA without individuals participating in clinical trials. So just to give you an idea, Suzanne, we talked about breast cancer and how great we are at treating that particular disease now. They have over a 30% clinical trial participation rate, which means over 30% of people diagnosed with breast cancer have enrolled in clinical trials. In Alzheimer's disease, our clinical trial participation rate is about 1.3%. Stop. ED is no laughing matter. This could be caused from low T, high blood pressure, or diabetes. Elevate Wellness can help. 40% of men over 40 have experienced this. Make the call to Elevate Wellness now. 973-354-2276. 973-354-2276. The office visit is only $99 and includes exam, blood work, test dose, and consultation. Call Elevate Wellness. 973-354-2276. Or Elevate Wellness Group. Dude, I can answer that question. I'm speaking personally. People don't want to relate and to enroll in something where they don't feel like there's hope. So what I've learned today is that if we enroll early, there are drugs that can help. It's like hyperblood. It's, it's like if you want to get, prevent a heart attack, you're going to go on drugs, a statin earlier is what you're telling me. So I think we need to get the word out that there is hope if we, if we enroll early and that we right. can do something about it and we can raise awareness. We're holding a benefit. I'm on the board, a, a benefit on July 29th in Bridgehampton. I think we should, anybody listening should please Google Fork It Hamptons. It's on my Instagram. And I'm hoping we get a lot of awareness. We raise a ton of money. I'm going to do what I can to try and keep the, the word out. And there's hope. And Beth, thank you so much for coming on the Miller Report. And keep doing what you're doing. And I want to help in any way I can. Yeah, Suzanne, I can't thank you enough um, for the, the staff of the Alzheimer's Association. We would be lost without our board members. Uh, I have a terrific board here. I know that you are a devoted and dedicated board member, and I thank you for volunteering your time and energy to make a difference in the cause. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Miller Report. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.